Well, our sermon text today is uh, the end of the second chapter of Mark's Gospel. It's Mark chapter 2, verses 23 to 28. It's printed on the back of your bulletin if you don't have a Bible there in front of you. If you'd like to stand, I'll ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word this morning. Mark chapter 2, verses 23 to 28. Give ear to the reading of God's word. It says, One Sabbath he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was not the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's, uh, let's ask God's blessing to, our, to us uh, from his word today. Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us your word. We thank you for even this passage we're about to look at this morning. And we ask that you would work in us by your spirit, that you'd give us eyes to see and ears to hear great things from your word. Help us to see Christ here in its pages and look to him and follow him even more. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, we've been, as we've been going through the second chapter of Mark's Gospel, if you've been with us, you've seen, you've probably noticed, the opposition to Christ is, is ratcheting up. It's, it starts off kind of slow, starts off kind of uh, subtle, but it's, it's becoming slowly more and more outward. You know, first they questioned and accused really Christ in their hearts, and he answered them anyway, which should have been a pretty big hint about who they were dealing with. Then they would go to his disciples and criticize him through them, not going to him directly. Well, now they're starting to come to him directly. Now in our passage, they're starting to criticize him and ask him questions about what he's doing and about his disciples' conduct directly. Last time, uh, we were looking at verses 18 to 22, and the issue that we looked at then in that passage was fasting. Remember, Jesus' disciples, when he was with them, they weren't fasting. John's disciples fasted, the Pharisees, their disciples fasted twice a week, some say, if you can imagine, imagine that. And so they criticized Christ for it. They said, hey, how come our disciples fast, John's disciples fast, but yours, they're, all, they're going to parties. You know, they're going to parties with, with tax collectors and scribes. And Jesus answered them, not by what we might expect. We, you know, we might have expected him to say, hey, fasting, that's Old Testament stuff. We don't do that anymore. It's not what he says at all. He says they can't fast when, when I'm with them. Why in the world would they fast when, when, when the bridegroom is with them? It's the last thing that they would be doing when he was on this earth with them. It would have been entirely, inap- not only was it not wrong for them not to fast, it would have been completely inappropriate for them to fast while he was yet with them. We're not going to fast in heaven, in case you didn't, didn't uh, know that, weren't aware of that. Uh, well, here in our passage, the issue isn't fasting, it's the Sabbath. You know, it seems like the Pharisees, you know, we have that old, that old hymn, you know, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Well, they had their eyes on Jesus, but not for the right reason. They weren't looking to him in faith. They were spying on him. They were following him around, but they weren't following him. 
They were watching to see anything they could accuse him of. You know, their true colors didn't take long to come out. They were always looking for something to accuse him of, looking for ways to discredit him or find fault with him and his ministry. And here in our text, they thought they found something, didn't they? And that something was what they perceived to be a violation of the Sabbath commandment, the fourth commandment. Now, if fasting in that previous passage seemed like a foreign concept to many of us in our day, I think Sabbath observance is even more so. The fourth commandment, I think, uh, it's, 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 a, it's one of those things that it would be an understatement to say that the fourth commandment has fallen on hard times in our day and in our culture. You bring up the subject of the Sabbath commandment, even in most Christian circles in our day, and I think you'll get some very mixed and odd reactions. You might get some shrugged shoulders, like, what's that even about? Do we even have to deal with that? You might get some raised eyebrows. You know, why are we even talking about the Sabbath in our day? And you probably even get some accusations of legalism for bringing it up. It's one of those uh, subjects that there's much error and confusion abounding uh, about it. Many sincere, well-meaning, Bible-believing Christians live functionally as if we only had nine commandments instead of ten. Other than church attendance, many people's Sundays are spent just like it were another day off. And in our day, in too many cases, even church attendance on the Lord's Day is seen as optional at best. I, I can't tell you, I couldn't even begin to number how many people I've met here in town and having casual conversation and they say, oh, you're a pastor, you know. Oh, we're Christians. And I first, what, what do you think the first question I ask them is? Where do you go to church? And I expect to say, you know, to hear, well, now I don't expect to hear much anymore because what I get is, oh, I'm a Christian. We don't do that. We don't, we don't go anywhere. We don't have a need for that. That's, apparently they've, they've uh, elevated themselves. They, they've, they've graduated from church. They don't need to be around the Lord's people um, well, that's not the way it should be. Um, now, some attempt to justify this, this practice, this idea, on a, on a mistaken understanding of the New Testament age in which we live. The logic, and I've heard it actually taught this way in, in my Bible college. Uh, it goes something like this. See if you've, Stop me if you've heard this before. The only commandments that are still in force today in the New Testament era are the ones that are repeated for us in the New Testament. I've had that uh, actually taught to me, not at seminary, but at Bible college. Never mind that this reasoning is entirely backward. It's a warped view, a divided view, an unnecessarily divided view of God's word. What we should say about the commandments is that unless a command is in some way repealed or abrogated in the New Testament, that we should see it as most certainly still valid and binding and proper. They, they use a backwards logic. Well, if it isn't repeated, it's not for today. What we should be saying is if there's nothing in the New Testament to tell us the opposite, it's still in force. It still applies. Now, even if somebody might be persuaded by that twisted logic, and maybe, uh, maybe some people are, um, is, is the fourth commandment really not repeated in the New Testament? If you can tell by our passage, it most certainly is dealt with. Walter Chantry um, has a book on this subject, and he kind of humorously, maybe sarcastically writes, If anyone says that the New Testament does not teach the fourth commandment, perhaps he should read the Gospels before he pretends to speak for the whole Testament. 
I got a kick out of that when I, when I read that. It, it's true. You don't read much of it in the epistles, but it's most certainly there all through the Gospels. In fact, um, you know, we're only in the end of the second chapter, and guess what he's going to deal with in, in the first part of chapter 3? Next verse, same as the first. He's going to deal with the same, the same subject, a, a, a controversy over the Sabbath. Uh, there is in chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. And why is that? You know, if you're familiar with the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you'll, you'll know, you'll remember that over and over again, what was one of the main things that the Pharisees and scribes tried to use to trip up Jesus and accuse him of wrongdoing? Breaking the Sabbath. Now, he, did he really break the Sabbath? No, if he did, we'd be in trouble. We'd have no Savior. Our Savior is sinless and perfect and has never sinned in any way, shape, or form. But, you know, when you read through the Gospels, it's almost humorous. It's almost as if Jesus put up, put up a closed sign in the healing business until it was the Sabbath. It's as if he waited on purpose to heal someone, as we're going to see in chapter 3, until it was the Sabbath to start doing good. It's like, I'll heal you, come back Saturday. Come back on the Sabbath and I'll heal you. Watch this. You know, it's, he knew what they were looking for to trip him up, and yet he didn't hide from it. How easy would it have been for Jesus to say, you know, I know this is going to cause trouble. Come to me on Thursday. You know, I'll heal you on, we'll do healings on Thursday, Sabbath. You know, let's just not cause any trouble. Jesus didn't seem to care about that one bit. If anything, he seemed to look to expose the false ideas, the twisted logic of the Pharisees and scribes. Now, this is one of those subjects that I, I don't believe I've preached on much here. This might be my first time that it's come up in a text, for whatever that's worth. And I have to say that this might be the first sermon some of you have ever heard on the Sabbath, on the subject of the Lord's Day. And I have to say as a, as a uh, proviso of sorts that we don't have time to go into every detail about it. But we'll have plenty of other texts in the book of Mark that bring it up, just like two Sundays from now. So if we don't touch on everything today, we will touch on it again when it comes up in the future texts in the book of Mark. So what we want to do this morning is look carefully at Jesus' example and his teaching on this important subject. Let us learn from his example regarding the proper observance of the fourth commandment. And we want to avoid the errors of the Pharisees, their legalistic errors in that Regarded. We're going to see at least three things from our text this morning. They're printed on the back of your bulletin. The outline is printed there. The first thing is the question of the Pharisees. It's really an accusation, but the question of the Pharisees regarding the disciples of Christ and their observance or lack thereof, seemingly, of the Sabbath. The second thing we're going to look at is the example of David. What does Jesus do when he's accused, through his disciples' actions, of breaking the Sabbath? He gives them a lesson from the Old Testament. He gives these experts in the Old Testament a lesson from an Old Testament example of, of King David. And the last thing we're going to see in our text is what Jesus calls himself there at the end, the Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus himself is the Lord of the Sabbath. You can imagine what that must have sounded like in the ears of the Pharisees who were questioning him. I wish that Mark had, had recorded for us what their response would have been. I'm sure it wasn't. Now, there's a reason that in chapter 3, verses 1 to 6, they're already plotting to destroy him. And I've got to believe it has something to do with him taking authority over the law, over the Sabbath commandment. He wasn't underneath the Sabbath commandment. He was the Lord and is the Lord of the law. He's the author of it. Let's look at the first thing, the question of the Pharisees found in verses 23 and 24. 
Again, that's, that's kind of putting it a little generously, isn't it? They're not just curious. They're not just asking a question. They're really accusing Jesus of something through what the disciples were doing. They're accusing him of doing something wrong, of breaking God's law. They're accusing, ironically, the Lord of breaking the Lord's law. They're accusing the Messiah of breaking the law of God. Now, what was the issue? Jesus and his disciples were passing by grain fields on the Sabbath, and they were hungry. So what did they do? They did what anybody in their right mind would do that was, that was hungry. They plucked some of the heads of grain, and they ate them on the way. Verse 23. Now, what they did was perfectly acceptable under the Mosaic law. Deuteronomy chapter 23, verses 24 to 25 says this. If you go into your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat your fill of grapes, as many as you wish. Your neighbor might not like that very much, but, uh, but you shall not put any in your bag. If you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. So if you're going through the, the vineyards and you're hungry, take as many grapes as you want to eat while you're there. If you're walking by or through your neighbor's standing grain, you know, it's almost time for the harvest and you're hungry, the law provided for you to take some if you were hungry to meet your need right then and there. Now, what was not allowed was taking a a to-go bag, right? You didn't get to take as many as you wanted for the next day or to take home to the family either. And you weren't allowed to take enough to sell. I mean, it's one thing to grab some stalks of grain. We don't know what it was, if it was wheat or corn or what it might have been, but something to eat. But, you know, a sickle, that's kind of pushing it. That's, what is that? That would be stealing. You know, if you're going to take a sickle to it, you're going to either take it for your own use later on or you're going to try to sell it. And that, that was, that's, that's crossing the line. God provided for travelers in this way. It was, it was a mercy that God commanded for travelers that were away from home but it wasn't to be abused. Now, what was the problem was, what day was this? The Sabbath. And because the disciples did this on the Sabbath, the Pharisees weren't too, weren't too thrilled about it. In verse 24, it says, The Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Now, this is a small thing, but when it says, We're saying to him, uh, for the one of you who knows Greek, it's in the imperfect tense, which means they were doing it over, it was kind of they're doing it over and over again. They didn't just go, excuse me, Jesus, um, you know, they, they ate. You know, they're telling, our kids like to tell. Uh, they're eating on the Sabbath. They're, they're taking, you know, it's like they were, it was like that they were doing it over and over again. They were, hey, 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 look what they're doing, look what they're doing, look what they're doing. They're, they're breaking the Sabbath, they're breaking the Sabbath. They're, they're just, they can't get enough of telling him uh, how bad his disciples apparently uh, we're being, well, real quick, in case, you know, we read this once a month on the first Sunday, but what is the Sabbath commandment? It's Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 to 11. Let's see if this applies to the situation that they were found themselves in. It says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath. To the Lord your God, on it you shall not do any work, you or your son, or your daughter, your male servant, or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So what's the commandment say? We're to keep one whole day in seven holy. 
And part of keeping that day holy, not the only part of it, but part of keeping the day holy is not doing any labor or work as you would normally do on the other six days. Well, is that what they were doing? Is that what Jesus' disciples were doing? Was this their day laborer job and they were cheating and doing it on, on Sundays? No. You know, in a sense, according to the commandment, basically to keep the day holy is to not treat it like you would any other day. It's not the same as the other six days of the week. It's a day for holy rest, and it's a day for worship. Well, were they violating the command of holy rest and worship by eating, by plucking a few heads? Would you not, if you had the grains on a plate, would it have been unlawful to pick them up off the plate? You know, Proverbs talks about the sluggard that's too lazy to put the fork to his mouth. Is that, was that the kind of thing that the, that the law commanded in the, in the fourth commandment? No, of course not. And what does that commandment say? It says the pattern for the, for, the, for the Sabbath rest was established in creation itself. Way back at the beginning, it was established in creation. God himself rested on the Sabbath day. Now, was God tired? No. Why did God rest on the Sabbath day? Not because he was tired, but to establish a pattern for you and for me. And it says there, he blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. He blessed it and made it holy. What does that tell us about the Sabbath? It's very counterintuitive. The Sabbath is meant to be not a burden, but a blessing. It's intended and given to us as a gift and as a blessing. So if we see the Lord's Day now as a burden, which many do, we're not, we're not looking at it correctly. We're actually looking at it, whether we practice it or not, we're looking at it as if, as if the, Pharise- the way the Pharisees did. It was something to be loaded onto our backs when it's meant to be just the opposite. Now, to the Pharisees, the disciples of Jesus, grabbing a handful of grain to eat it, it, con- it constituted working, laboring, if you can imagine that, on the Sabbath. They, they somehow equated this simple act of grabbing a few stalks of grain to eat as harvesting and as threshing. That's how technical they were about about that kind of a thing. They had added their tradition on top of the commandment as a hedge around the commandment to kind of keep you safe. You know, well, as long as I don't do this, then I've kept the commandment. No commandment can be kept that way. Not just the Sabbath commandment. None of them can be kept merely outwardly. To merely outwardly keep any commandment isn't to keep the commandment. You can be violating any commandment on the inside from the heart, while you're going through the motions of obeying it outwardly alone. You know, on the surface, their complaint looks like they're just criticizing the disciples, doesn't it? Who are they really criticizing here with their question? They tell Jesus what? They, they tell Jesus to look. Look, your disciples are breaking the Sabbath. They're really criticizing him. They're criticizing him and accusing him of not paying attention to his disciples or of leading them possibly even astray. They're saying, you're responsible for the actions of your followers. They're following, literally following you, and look what they're doing. As if he hadn't somehow noticed what they were doing. So how does Jesus answer them? That brings us to our second point. He points them to the example of King David of all people. King David, who also had some followers with him, a very small band, just like Jesus did at the time, with him during this this example that he gives. In verses 25 to 26, Jesus says this, 
And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which, is, which it is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. So David and his men, are, they're hungry. They're, they, have no, they have no provision. And what did they do? They went into the, to the house of God and ate the holy bread, ate the bread that was just supposed to be for the priest. Now, notice first what Jesus doesn't say. I know this is an argument from silence, but you'll have to bear with me. What does Jesus not say here? He doesn't say anything about the Sabbath command no longer applying, does he? If that was the case, wouldn't that have, might have caused more problems, but wouldn't that have been a shorter answer? Yeah, that one doesn't matter anymore. He doesn't say anything like that. In fact, he assumes quite the opposite. He doesn't say anything about the commandment no longer applying. He says nothing of the kind. What he does is he upholds the commandment, but he corrects and even rebukes the abuses of it. And that's what he's doing here in our text. Jesus begins to answer the question by appealing to what? To Scripture. Have you never read, he's really saying, have you ever read the Scripture about, about King David? Now, there alone, that's a lesson for us in and of itself, isn't it? You know, when a question arises about what you and I are to believe or what duty God requires of his redeemed people, where should we go? How do we settle it? How do we settle those questions? By the scripture, let's look to the word of God about any of those kinds of matters. If we find ourselves in a disagreement or dispute, let's turn to the scriptures and see what the scripture says about those things. And let us be ready to accept whatever the Bible says about those things. You know, there's a reason God gave us a book. You know, too often we're like those people in the Old Testament in the days of, of, of the judges that did what's right in their own eyes. We assume that we naturally on our own think God's thoughts after him. That, well, God must think what we think. But it's not the case, is it? Very often our thinking needs to be, our minds need to be renewed according to the scripture. No matter how long you've been a Christian, very often our thoughts still need to be renewed according to the scripture. And, and let us not have a cause to answer Jesus' question there. Have you not or have you never read? Let us prepare to, to not be having to answer that in the negative. Very often we haven't read. Very often we are unfamiliar with certain parts of scripture. And so let us, be, let us affirm to be uh, diligent students of the word of God. Let's read it. Let's hear it preached and give attention to it. Let's study it. Let's meditate upon what we read there in it. Let's be familiar with its contents, even just by, by reading it. And let us think through the implications of even things like historical narratives. What is Jesus doing here? Jesus, in a sense, he doesn't even go to a commandment and say, look, it says thou shalt whatever. He looks at the example of David from a historical narrative and says, look, there's something you can learn from that. Look what David did. Are you going to accuse David of breaking the Sabbath? Or of breaking God's law? I don't think that by any way they would, they would do that. Well, here in our text, Jesus asks the Pharisees, basically it's a rebuke. How could they possibly have missed this? Is what he's saying. Have you never read this? You're familiar with this story, right? Of course you are. You're Pharisees. You know the Old Testament. Well, let me tell you something about the Old Testament. That, that, that account is found in 1 Samuel chapter 21, verses 1 through 6. Where David, who's in need, him and his companions, that's a way of saying they're kind of starving. They have nothing to eat. They're traveling. They're on the run. 
from Saul. And, and what does it do? He ate, they ate the bread of presence out of the temple, which was permissible only for the priests to eat. Did God hold David guilty for it? Is there anything in that text in 1 Samuel 21 that suggests in any way, shape, or form that ah, David shouldn't have done that? Or that Abiathar the priest or Ahimelech shouldn't have done what he did? Should the priest have said, whoa, Ah, uh, sorry, David. No, I don't know. That's not really supposed to be what that's what that's for. You know, Samuel, First Samuel twenty-one, twice even calls that bread that was given to David and his men literally holy bread. Now it's just bread. It wasn't made with a special recipe. The other bread wasn't, but it was set aside for a special use in the temple, and it was designed after it was being used to be given to the priests. It was one of the ways God provided for the physical daily needs of the priesthood there in Israel. You know, it was reserved for the priest, uh, and it was there not that so other people might starve, but so that the priests might have their needs met. We read too much, they read too much, would have read too much into the commandment to think that the sole purpose was to keep it from someone else. The real purpose of that command was to provide for the priests and for the work that they do, the bread, that bread was to be replaced with new bread every Sabbath. Leviticus 24 verses 8 and 9 tells us that. Now, the day when David and his men ate this bread, we don't know, if, but it may have been on the Sabbath. It may have been on the day when the priest was supposed to switch it out with the new bread and take that bread for himself. So what's he really doing? What was the priest doing? He was giving to David and his men of his own bread that was designed and given to meet his own needs for his own use. So Ahimelech gave David the bread that was meant to be there for himself. And again, did God accuse him of sin on account of this charity and this act of love? No. He didn't charge David with any act of sin in doing that and eating that bread. Well, neither should the Pharisees then have twisted the Sabbath commandment in order to require that the Lord's disciples should starve or go hungry either. In other words, there's a reason that Jesus picked that text. The parallels are pretty striking. There's the, the king of Israel, which really David, David was, and, and so was Jesus Christ, with a small band of followers traveling who were hungry. And the appearance could have been such that someone might have accused them of wrongdoing, of breaking the law, but they really hadn't. And Jesus is saying that same lesson is in effect here with regards to the Sabbath. Now, again, the commandments, the Sabbath as well, the commandments are not there to be a burden to God's people. We too often think of it that way. We think of them as a burden. And if we do, we're thinking of them incorrectly. They're there to be a blessing, not a burden. They're intended not to prevent us from loving and caring for the needs of our neighbors or giving us excuse not to do that, but they're rather there to show us what loving God and our neighbor really looks like. How do you know what it looks like to love God? How do you know what it looks like to love your neighbor? Well, the commandments show you that. The commandments are not contrary to love. They are the definition of it. We cannot love God without following his commandments towards him. We can't love our neighbor without following God's commandments as regarding our neighbors. Well, the third and the final thing we see in our text this morning is that Jesus calls himself the Lord of the Sabbath. In verses 27 to 28, it says this, 
He said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So again, Jesus doesn't say, hey, that's not binding anymore. That commandment doesn't matter. We don't worry about that. What he says is something far more startling, isn't it? He doesn't say, hey, that commandment doesn't matter anymore. He says, you're talking to the Lord of the Sabbath. I'm the one that invented it, is really what he was telling them. The Pharisees were accusing the lawgiver of breaking his own law. Of course, they didn't recognize him as being that, but that's what he is. And not only that, he tells them that man, they had it backwards, didn't they? Man wasn't made for the sake of the Sabbath. That's how they looked at it. Rather, the Sabbath itself was made for man's benefit. was made as a gift. The Pharisees, by their tradition, made it out to be a burden instead of a blessing and instead of a gift. Now, verse 27, I think there, Jesus tells us something that we may still have questions about the Lord's Day and the Sabbath and how to think of it and all of that, but I think verse 27 should really transform our view of the fourth commandment. It should demolish the twisting of God's law into a burdensome form of legalism, into a way of trying to achieve righteousness before our holy God. He says the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So that fourth commandment, what does it say? It it tells us that that is meant to be, again, a blessing and a benefit, not a burden. It's meant for our good, not merely for the outward observance of it. It's not intended to withhold good things from us. That's how we typically think of it, isn't it? We act like God's key. It's just like the Garden of Eden. God's holding out on you. That one tree. He gave you all the rest of the trees, but that one, that must be a really special tree. God's really holding back on you. The Sabbath is not meant to withhold good things from you and from me, but it's meant to hold forth far better things to us. We just have to develop a taste for those things. You know, it's like when I was a kid, I was, uh, my, my, our kids are pretty good eaters. Ben's a pretty good eater. I never was. I wouldn't try anything. It's a miracle I don't just drink water and eat bread. You know, God, it's, my, my, my mom constantly, tr- just try it. Try it once, and if you don't like it, then, you know, she still make me eat it. But, you know, try it once. Well, we're, we're like that sometimes. I don't want to try it. And God's like, it's, for, it's good for you. It's good. It's not, it's not bad. I'm not giving you something that tastes bad. Inactivity is not the goal. Boredom is not the point. The worship and communion with our Most High God and Heavenly Father is the point. The enjoyment of the outward and ordinary means of grace is what God holds forth to us on His holy day. J.C. Ryle writes this on the fourth commandment. He says, Let us be jealous over our own conduct in the matter of observing the Sabbath. There is little danger of the day being kept too strictly in the present age. This is written a long time ago. There is far more danger of its being profaned and forgotten entirely. Let us contend earnestly for its preservation among us in all its integrity. We may rest assured that national prosperity and growth in grace are intimately bound up in the maintenance of a holy Sabbath. That's a mouthful. Growth in grace, that's the easy one. What are the outward, where, do you, where do you get to enjoy the outward and ordinary means of grace? In public worship and private worship on the Lord's Day. That's, that's the main, the primary reason God gave the day 
to us. National prosperity, that might raise a few eyebrows. Uh, it might be misunderstood quite easily. But in, when you read your Old Testament, that's what he's talking about. Israel very often was judged and chastised for its breaking of the Sabbath, of all kinds of different Sabbath commandments. Also, commandments against idolatry. God still deals with nations today. Just because we're not Israel doesn't mean it doesn't matter how the people in general approach God's commandments. You know, um, in our day, we need a right understanding of God's law and the fourth commandment in particular. And you know, think about the Sabbath. There's so much more we could go into. The, the Sabbath is a picture of a couple things. It's more than a picture, but it's a picture of our rest in the gospel. There's still a Sabbath rest for the people of God, Hebrews says. And what is that? We rest from our works. We rest from trying to earn our salvation. The Sabbath is kind of a picture of the gospel. And so how we treat it in some way will affect our thoughts on the gospel. What else is the Sabbath a picture of? What is corporate worship a picture of? It may not feel like it, depending how it goes on a particular Sunday, right? It's a picture of heaven. The Sabbath rest is time spent with God and not being, not being burdened down with other things. The Sabbath removes the burden, not placing one on our backs. You know, and the good news for us is the Lord of the Sabbath, Jesus Christ, the one who called himself the Lord of the Sabbath, he died for Sabbath breakers. We're all, we're all Sabbath breakers, and he died to give us a true rest and a true and lasting Sabbath. And Jesus himself is the Lord of the Sabbath, and he who made the Sabbath made it for us and gave it to us for our benefit. May we learn to call the Sabbath, as Isaiah 58 says, may you and I learn to call the Sabbath a delight and celebrate the Lord's Day, as the Heidelberg Catechism says, as our festive day of rest, when we have the great privilege of resting from our labors and gathering with the Lord's people in worship from week to week and enjoying the outward and ordinary means of God's grace in Jesus Christ. Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you and give you praise that, that we, we often, we've broken all your commandments. We've broken the fourth commandment when left and right. And yet you sent your son to die in our place to pay the price for our breaking and profaning and forgetting of your Sabbath. And that he came to give us the true rest of that Sabbath pictures for us. That we could rest from our works and rest in him alone for salvation. That our righteousness is only found in him. Forgive us for the ways that we have often thought much more like Pharisees than like disciples. For the ways that we viewed your law, your commandments, and even the Sabbath, the Lord's Day now, as somehow a burdensome regulation strapped to our backs rather than something that's a blessing and given to us for our good and for our benefit. Give us grace to call your Sabbath a delight, and give us grace more and more to see it as a festive day of rest that we get to spend with you, our great God and Savior. Change our hearts, melt our hearts, soften our hearts, help us to love you and obey even this commandment which is given to us for our good. Build us up by your means of grace, and give us grace to love you because you loved us first. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.